Hello and welcome to the D2C podcast. I'm Eric Dick. Today, I was lucky enough to interview a true legend in the direct marketing space and someone I've learned a huge amount from over the years, one Mr. Perry Belcher. You may know Perry as a co-founder of Digital Marketer, as well as the epic conference Traffic and Conversion Summit, or as the legendary sales and copywriting expert behind several hundred million in e-commerce and info sales, you're going to hear in this podcast a veritable cornucopia of wisdom from the longtime marketer, such as why the squeeze is on for retailers and what you can do to make sure that cheese is worth the squeeze, what e-commerce people can learn from direct marketers, as well as You may be making offers to your customers, but are you leveraging premiums as well as bonuses? You'll hear Perry talk about what the future holds for AI and how Perry uses AI copywriting already. And we'll finish by going down the rabbit hole and through the silver lining of the semi-dismal economy that we're currently facing. Make sure you stick to the end because it gets real rosy. Hope you enjoy it. On with the show. good premium only has to be something someone wants. I used to do a campaign for LifeLock where we gave away a paper shredder. That was a very congruent premium. People concerned about privacy, yada, yada, yada. It's totally unnecessary for it to be congruent. Back in the day, if you open bank accounts at banks, they give you a free toaster. They could have given away a calculator or a budgeting tool or something, but they didn't. There's a company down in Florida, Big O Tire, that if you buy tires in January and February, They send a dozen roses to your girl on Valentine's Day, so you don't have to screw with it. What do roses have to do with tires? Not a damn thing. But if you're going to go get a set of tires, and over here they're going to give you roses, and over here they ain't giving you nothing, guess where I'm buying my tires? Hey, retailers, ever feel like your shopper experience feels just like everyone else's? Here's an idea. Put your shopper first with the only personalization platform that is purpose-built for retailers. Bluecore combines retail data and predictive intelligence to match online shoppers with the products they will buy next across channels like email, site, paid media, social, and SMS. Automate and scale your personalized content offers and recommendations for each shopper in a one-on-one, individualized experience. Visit bluecore.com to see why brands like Noble, Express, and Bliss have gone shopper first to drive repeat purchases and increase customer lifetime value. Welcome to the D2C Podcast, Perry. Can you tell me what your top focus is in the digital world today? <laughs> My top focus is not being focused. I think I'm a little different than most people. I, everybody that tells me I need to focus, I want to hit in the mouth with something. It, it, um, every time I really focus in, I lose money. I had almost decided, I bought conventions.com a couple of years ago, and I'd almost decided it was such a big thing. It's an $85 billion industry uh, just here in the United States. And I'm, I own the vernacular. I'm conventions.com. This should be a billion-dollar company. And I almost sold everything else I had to dive into the conventions.com business. I came really, really close. And then I closed on conventions.com. And three weeks later, in China, they announced uh, COVID. So had I focused, I'd be folked right now. <laughs> you know, I'd be completely broke because everything that... A lot of my other stuff went up during pandemic, but obviously that one having to do with conventions and tourism uh, did not. You know, so I'd, I would have lost a lot of dough had I done that. So it's been my experience. I can keep my hands around about five things at a given time, 
Beyond that, I get a little squirrely, but about five things I can kind of, I have a pretty short attention span as a lot of entrepreneurs do. And the idea of sitting every day, all day working on the same thing would make me want to blow my brains out. I, I just wouldn't enjoy it. So I, I like having, you know, numerous things. I don't focus a lot. If I focus in a theme, it would be that um, big ticket makes more money than small ticket does. You know, that would be kind of my theme of the the day. And I've been a guy that for years and years and years has preached a handful of dollars from hundreds of thousands of people. And I've done that, you know, effectively. It's just the marketplace doesn't support it anymore. Advertising costs are too high. If you're dealing with physical goods, shipping costs are too high. People are refund happy and chargeback happy and merchant merchant companies are just murdering people. You know, and we, you and I talked about merchants the other day and talked about, you know, even um, private label manufacturers are just really tearing into the, the retailer. The retailer is just like a big piece of cheese out there that everybody, the ad platforms, the merchant fee providers, the merchandise providers, the shipping companies, everybody is nibbling off that same block of cheese right now. So you better have a really big block of cheese if you plan on surviving because the little block of cheese folks ain't going to make it. Hence the high ticket. Hence the high ticket. That it's by my experience that right now low ticket goods are very expensive to sell, and high ticket goods are very inexpensive to sell. But you have to know how to sell. You can't just market. <clears throat> People think that marketing replaces sales, and in very rare occasions it does. But generally speaking, being able to sell something will really set you apart. Because I mean, we all pay. Traffic is becoming commodity. You know, we all pay about the same amount for traffic. The, there, For a while there, you could really come out if you're a really smart media buyer because there were, you know, big delta in how what I could buy media for and what you could buy media for based on my skill level and all that stuff. And the platforms are democratizing that like crazy. Like Google's Performance Max platform is just give them a URL and how much you want to spend per customer and let them go. And they do a pretty great job. So you're, you know, traffic's democratized. So what's going to be the difference? The difference is going to be marketing to gather a lead. And then how good is your marketing to get a lead? And then how good are you at converting that lead into a sale? And and those are, those are things that have skill variables to them. And they're always going to have skill variables. I don't care what you say. Marketing, to some extent, will be a little more commoditized because... You understand, like you know, probably I know, where to put a button on a page and what color to make it and, you know, how big the landing page needs to be and all that kind of crap, right? Where it used to be we were the 1% that knew that. Well, maybe now we're the 25% that know that, you know, and eventually we'll be the 100% that know that. But the only edge it seems like in the space in that commoditized area is sort of like the creative volume at this point. Great creative, you know, no, yeah. great creative, but also that's that's the, the 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 performance marketer says now. Okay, I don't have as many toggles, I don't have as much targeting fidelity, but what I do have, you know, I hear again again on that podcast is the ability to iterate rapidly, and that's that's sort of like the last bastion of sort of like marketer's edge aside from product, which of course is the most important thing. But that's always been the case. You know, I think we're I think we're headed backwards, honestly. Like if you you and I were talking, I think the other day, if you looked at a city like Boise, Idaho, there were probably five people in Boise who had an in-house marketing department 50 years ago, five companies. Now every company's got one. 
But the deal is they ain't that great, right? It used to be when you had a lot of money to spend, you went to an advertising agency because they produced what? Great creative. And they would come up with great creative campaigns for you. And that's what made advertisers and advertising agencies very, very, very wealthy because the difference was not their ability to push a button and buy ABC, CBS, and NBC. Like, well, I'm a media buyer. What do you do? Well, I buy Facebook and YouTube. So what? So can anybody, right? But the <clears throat> the big delta in there is creative. And then finally, you got a second level of delta when you're selling big ticket because can you sell that lead? You know, once you get that lead in and you get on the phone with them or on chat with them or however you're going to communicate with them, you know, can you make that 5, 10, 20, 30, 50, $100,000 sale? And oddly enough, it ain't that hard for a lot of reasons, I think. There's not that much competition. There's way more competition on the bottom than there is on the top. When you get to those top tier people, you had to have a good deal of confidence to get on the phone and ask somebody to give you 50 grand. And you better feel pretty good that you're gonna be able to deliver an ROI for them or you're gonna end up burning yourself up, your brand and everything else in a short period of time. But if you have that confidence and you do have something that's worthwhile, by all means, charge a lot. Uh, Dan Kennedy had a client once he told me about that this guy helped truck drivers find Russian brides. And the guy charged nine ninety five, a thousand bucks for his service. And the first thing Dan told him was raise your rates to fifteen grand. And he said, "Well, nobody's going to pay that." He said, "Man, these guys are driving hundred thousand dollar trucks. This is somebody that they're going to have sex with. This is somebody that they're going to live with. And this is a much bigger decision than a truck. You know, charge a lot." And and he did, and it worked out great. You know, they just targeted well and they charged a lot. And some people won't buy a thousand dollar wife. They might buy fifteen thousand. <laughs> Sounds awful, but I mean, yeah. But but you know what I'm saying. If I if I tell you yeah. that I'm going to teach you everything I ever knew about copywriting for fifteen dollars, do you really believe that? No freaking way, right? I can. It would take a long time, and you know, if I'm going to spend, if I'm any good at it, if I'm really any good at it, I, I listened to some guy on Clubhouse the other morning doing a big thing about you know, how he's made billions of dollars and millions of dollars and all friends with all these billionaires. And he's going to show you exactly how to do all of it for 39 bucks. And I'm like, give me a freaking break, dude. And that, and that could be top of funnel, right? A lot of people sucker in for that. But but <clears throat> those kind of ads and stuff draw in bad clients, you know, generally speaking. So, And then when you can get to that top ticket, uh, you know, it's 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 really interesting. We In the pre-interview, we were talking a little bit about, you know, one thing that you're sort of famous for in the marketing vernacular are tripwires, which is this item. And you were saying asking me to talk about tripwires is like asking Prince to play Purple Rain again. But I think it's so interesting. And you're describing, you know, this info, this sort of like info funnel in a way, right? Where you get them in on a lower ticket, then you show you can provide value, then you, you, know, you go in for those higher and higher tickets. What I'm interested in is what can our listeners who are mostly, you know, physical product sellers, what can they take from this like super powered info funnel that you've kind of perfected over the years and apply to their their, you know, e-commerce funnels. You know, I didn't, I really didn't build that funnel. Um, I didn't really build, build that funnel to sell info products. I didn't sell info products for six years after I started selling online, but I, I started the tripwire funnel. I don't know why it just kind of came to me because I came out of retail. I used to be in retail, so it kind of came to me, but, uh, and we used to have in retail, what we call lost leaders. You would set out stuff out front that, to sell for a dollar that you paid a dollar twenty for, because you knew that 
people going, wow, that's a bargain. They buy one, put it in their basket, and then off they go into the store and they spend another 500 bucks, right? So I just found that in physical goods space, find a part of what you sell that's um, useful but incomplete. So my big story that I teach on that are candle wicks, you know. So when I went into the, I went, in, I was in the candle business. I sold that business. I couldn't sell candles by legal constraint because I sold the business for million, multi millions of dollars when I was like thirty-eight years old, I guess. And I couldn't be back in the candle business for five years at a non-compete, but I could sell candle supplies. So I went in the candle supply business, and there were five or six big companies. And uh, I fundamentally put them all out of business in a year. The last one, the old lady called me, Miss Barker, Maul Barker, everybody called her and said, well, you finally won. I'm closing up my doors after 41 years. And I'm like, oh, geez, I feel bad for you. You got anything you want to sell at a discount? Um, I didn't say that. I'm just kidding. I kind of did. But but the way I did it was by taking an item, candle wicks. Everybody making a candle had to have a candle wick, right? So it was a useful but incomplete item. And because it was such a, a low ticket item, people tended to mark it up really big. So you don't sell many candles. You buy wicks for, you know, $5 a thousand. You sell them for $40 a thousand, let's say. But you can't make a candle without a wick. It's impossible. So um, I sold candles for $4.99 a thousand. And pretty soon, within literally 60 days, I was on the forums and the magazines and stuff, within 60 days, Every candle maker in America was buying their wicks from me because they couldn't import them cheap enough. Well, once I'd acquired the customer, then I just started adding in more and more products and just took advantage of the the natural uh, desire for people to spend money in fewer places. Most people don't want to spend money in a lot of different places. So you can apply to that. I've used a tripwire to sell remodeling services before, uh, home remodeling services. I've got a student right now using using a tripwire to um, actually using a premium, not necessarily a tripwire, but a premium <clears throat> to sell thousand dollar haircuts, you know, cause she does hair extensions and dyeing and all that stuff. And it's like 800 to a thousand bucks a client. So she started giving away these hundred dollar blow dryer things, these really fancy blow dryer things to all of her new clients on their first appointment. She advertises that and using a premium, give you a few little tips about premium. She spent $13 last week and booked four appointments. Average appointments, 800 bucks, and she makes about $500 of that $800. So she spent $13 and made two grand. How's that for us, right? But had she just said, hey, come down to my salon and get your hair done, even at a discount or whatever else, it wouldn't have been as effective. So those tripwires and those premiums, um, not so secret, but it's like my secret, not so secret, trick. We're just testing premiums on the info side. We're, we're launching our pre-sale page course for, for $9, and then we're going to upsell to our full course. Excited to be testing this. But I think premiums are something that we use on the e-commerce side all the time. It's actually the first time we talked about it on the podcast. We did a, a, an All Killer No Filler podcast last week about offers and about in the current like economy uh, with consumer confidence kind of going down, how important it is to be packaging up your product in offers, offering things like premiums. I think that's a really good idea. What are your sort of Rule. It's funny, I, I, I tried to in-tune what the rules are for, for using premiums, and I was incorrect about them. So why don't you tell us, like, what are the rules of thumb for creating good premiums to sell products? 
Yeah. Uh, well, there are three. There's tripwires, premiums, and bonuses, and they're very, very different, right? So everybody thinks they're the same. That those things mean the same thing. They don't. A tripwire is an impulse purchase that you make to get someone's credit card, right? And um, and all these things, these premiums, by the way, they're all better if they're physical stuff. You can have digital premiums, but digital premiums don't move the needle like physical premiums do. But but number one, like a tripwire, like I'm selling laminated sheets right now for my FIBS copywriting course. And it's $6.95 and you get these laminated sheets that are useful but incomplete. They're very useful. They're a very good tool. But you're not going to get the full effect of being a great copywriter by buying the sheets, but you'll get it gets you further down the line. So then I'll sell a $300 copywriting course on the back of that, and I run about a 16 to 19% conversion rate on that course because I've already got a credit card. That purchase is really, really easy to make. One click of a button to make it. That's a tripwire. A premium is more like, um, like I used to do a campaign for LifeLock where we gave away a, um, a paper shredder. And that was a very congruent premium. Uh, people concerned about privacy, yada, yada, yada. It's totally unnecessary for it to be congruent. It doesn't matter. A good premium only has to be something someone wants. If you, you know, examples used to be back in the day, if you open bank accounts at banks, they give you a free toaster. What's a toaster have to do with banking? Absolutely. Guns in some places. Guns, states, yeah. In, in, in yeah, Texas, if you accounts. open a savings and loan account, they give you a shotgun. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which, you know, they just try to give away guns in Texas. If you go buy a pack of cigarettes, they give you a gun. Um, but, but that was an example Everybody wanted a new toaster, you know. Uh, they could have given away a calculator or a budgeting tool or something. They didn't because they knew people wanted. The two biggest premiums for years were toasters and steak knives because no, everybody had a dirty toaster and everybody had an incomplete set of steak knives, you know. And those were a big deal for a while. But, like, a great example, one of the ones I love, too, if you go watch it on YouTube, the football phone from Sports Illustrated, absolutely saved that company's life. They were going bankrupt and they sold a million and a half magazine subscriptions in about a year and a half using the football phone. Um, uh, there's a company down in, in Florida, Big O Tire, that if you buy tires in January and February, they send a dozen roses to your girl on Valentine's Day so you don't have to screw with it. It's one of the most brilliant premiums in the world. So what do roses have to do with tires? Not a damn thing. But if you're gonna go get a set of tires and over here they're gonna give you roses and over here they ain't giving you nothing, guess where I'm buying my tires, right? That's a good use of a premium. And then bonuses are things you add on uh, at usually at the end at offer time to sweeten the deal. My very best bonuses, by the way, I've never taught this, but my very best bonuses are mystery boxes. I'm gonna give you this mystery box of stuff, rattle, 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 bet you, can't, bet you can't guess what's in it, but I'm gonna send this to you as a bonus. Those make great bonuses. Uh, the problem with bonuses, people make a lot of mistakes with bonuses in that they wanna add a bonus to an offer and you can actually kill a conversion by adding a bonus uh, two different ways. So let's say you're selling a course on copywriting and I say, and I'm also gonna give you my course on funnel building. Well. That could, be, that could be construed as value, but it can also be, be construed as more work. Gosh, now i got two courses to go through instead of one, right? Or you bonus something that probably should have been in the main course anyway. It's like, you know, ordering a car 
and then saying, hey, and as a bonus, we're going to give you a steering wheel. Because it immediately makes you think, I thought the steering wheel was in the car. What else is it missing? We got the brakes in here. What else yeah. is <laughs> Right. So you, yeah. So we'll give you free brakes, you know, when you buy today. Right? So the, you can be, you, you have to be careful on how you use those three tools, but used in conjunction, they're very good. And I use premiums all the way down my funnels. If somebody gets a premium when they buy my front end, I offer them a bigger premium when they buy the mine upsell and a bigger premium still when they buy my third upsell. I love that. I love the fo- the football phone is such. I hadn't thought about that. I remember I had one growing up and I loved it. Watch it. Go watch the commercial. And that's yeah, a great one because it's a custom product too. It's something you wouldn't get anywhere else. It's you know right. you can't get anywhere else. Yeah, uh, two minutes. That's a two minute commercial, which is like a kind of an odd, oddball advertising unit. They speak for nine seconds about Sports Illustrated. The entire rest of the ad is about the football phone. When you're leading with a premium, you spend all your time on the premium. Super interesting. Cool stuff. Yeah, it's a very different way to approach things. Yeah. Um, so I just want to talk a little bit about info because, you know, I, even just talking about D2C, D2C is a now standalone media company, but it was spun out of an agency. It fills the funnel of the agency uh, with clients while it is a standalone media client. So that's our info strategy, basically. Where, where does info fit into your overall business efforts these days? Well... <laughs> It depends on your goal, right? And mine, my goal is different than most people's goals because I've already, um, you know, I always joke, I've already made fuck you money and now I want to make fuck everybody money. Um, so you, th- there's a difference, you know. You, um, Nothing moves the needle for me unless it's going to be at least $20 million gross in 24 months and throwing off a profit and something I know I can sell, et cetera, et cetera. So if you're a... If I were an info seller today um, and I had something to sell info-wise, I would approach it two different ways. I would either publish it on all the platforms like Udemy, Kindle, Audible, uh, and let them sell for me, right? And I think if you do a pretty good job with that, you probably could make, you know, no one thing's going to make you a lot. But if you're a content producing machine and you can produce five or six courses, five or six books, whatever, you probably can make a few hundred thousand dollars a year and maybe drive people from those products to private consulting, coaching, stuff like that, high ticket, and make maybe a half a million bucks a year. The other way that's really interesting right now, uh, there's a guy, I want to meet this guy. If anybody knows him, I, I I think he's amazing. I don't have it. I don't even, I can't remember his name, but he has a YouTube channel called um, Forever Self-Employed. It's a great YouTube channel. And what this kid does, he goes out and teaches people blue-collar ways to make money. So, hey, look at this. I just bought this old Honda Civic for $500, and I'm going to fix it up and see if I can flip it this weekend for $1,500. So come on over and let's show you how I do it. Here's how I'm going to clean the ashtray, and here's how I'm going to finish the seats, and yada, yada, yada. Or he'll say, hey, I'm out with my pressure-washing truck today, and we're going to go – I'm going to go pressure-wash barbecue grills. I make a lot of money pressure-washing barbecue grills. Come on, I'm going to show you how I pressure wash barbecue grills. And he teaches the whole skill on YouTube absolutely for free. But at the end of every video, he says, now, if you want to know how I make money doing this and how I sell those jobs, click here and go buy my $300 course, right? So he sells a $300 basic, the same $300 local marketing course on all of it, right? On the back of no matter what vertical you come in, you're basically selling, buying one product. I think he does pretty well because he's he's actually leveraging 
social media traffic, he promotes his own videos, but he also gets a lot of organic reach with the videos. So he's got an interesting model in that he's making some money from YouTube, paying him for the views. Uh, he's buying some YouTube ads, but those YouTube ads popularize him and get people to watch his other videos organically. And it's a really low tech solution. He doesn't even have a website. He just sends and the content's directly. complete. It's complete too. Like you, you, watching it, you, you're seeing him restore, do all these things. Like people will be watching it for that purpose only, maybe. And then, then you get this whole other side of it, which is okay. Now here's how I monetize it, and that's where he monetizes. Yeah. If you know, if you want to know how I buy the cars, how I advertise the cars for sale, how I do all the, the business side of this, you know, you could you could have a channel teaching people to grow African violets. And the end say, hey, did you know you can sell African violets for $100 a piece? If you want to know how I run my African violet business, go over here. And it's a small percentage of your audience, but that's that. Those are the two things. If I didn't have a lot of money and I really didn't, wasn't concerned with making, <clears throat> you know, millions of dollars, just making a really good living, that's probably what I would do. Um, on the other side of that, our people in War Room Mastermind and my other mastermind with the Kevin Nation's Odyssey and those guys, those guys are all multi-million dollar sellers, you know, 50, $100 million guys. And the only reason they use info is to eat marketing costs so that they can get somebody on the phone and sell them something high ticket. So, and, and like with, with your stuff, if your guys are, are info sellers, I mean, uh, physical product sellers, they really should look at bundling info products into a lot of their physical products. Even on Amazon, that works well. Um, you know, we, I was the neighbor of a Wiley Publishing. <clears throat> they were in the same building with me. And they do all the For Dummies books. And they had, a, they had a ukulele For Dummies book that was a turd for them. It just wouldn't sell. Nobody bought it. And uh, they found, and it was like eight ninety five, right? And they couldn't sell it. And then somebody approached them to sell ukuleles. And they found a ukulele for like eight bucks somewhere, right? They bundle the ukulele with the book and they sell it for 49 bucks and it sells great, right? It sells terrific. It's one of their best sellers, one of their highest margin items, one of their best sellers on Amazon. But the ukulele itself didn't sell very well and the book didn't sell very well. But when you combine the ukulele and the book, you, you sell well and you got kind of a blue ocean product. So somebody might be looking at another ukulele, but it doesn't come with the book that teaches you how to play it. Somebody else might be looking at another ukulele book, but it didn't come with a ukulele. So it gives you a, um, you know, that bundle of info and um, uh, tangible goods bundle uh, tends to really drive a lot of value. Tax season is over, but that doesn't mean your e-commerce company shouldn't stay on top of things. It's a hassle trying to find a strategic tax advisor that can ensure you have the right financial data needed to make critical business decisions. Look no further. The veteran team at 1-800-ACCOUNTANT has your back. Boost your profitability with 1-800-ACCOUNTANT, America's largest virtual accounting firm. They have the on-demand accountants you need to formulate your year-round tax strategy. They offer an entire suite of professional services, including payroll and bookkeeping, to make sure that your I's are dotted and T's are crossed. Get started today by scheduling a free appointment at 1-800-ACCOUNTANT.COM DTC. Speak to an expert who will show you how to get the most out of your business year-round. That's 1-800-ACCOUNTANT.COM slash DTC to schedule an appointment now. When I asked you earlier uh, what your 
the superpower that you would attribute the bulk of your success to, you mentioned that it was sort of being able to see holes in markets. Are there any uh, holes? I, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, some of the challenges that are facing D2C brand owners and marketers with the shrinking margins and this kind of squeeze on from all sides. I was wondering if you also saw any blue sky, any any blue sky opportunities in this space for, for retailers? Yeah. Um, you know, certain people like Snow's done really well with teeth whitening and a couple of these guys, I, I met the lady that did Hint Water and all that. I think that um, a couple of things, you know, you can go out in the influencer space and get a lot of people to talk up your product. The problem is I just don't think that there's the repetitiveness it takes to build a brand. Like if you look at a, a Procter & Gamble, right, they owned soap operas. Soap operas were made by soap companies you know they they invented the programming because they knew that women that bought very romantic high dramatized stuff watched that tended to buy more stuff so there wasn't enough programming for them so they just invented it they went to the tv stations and said we'll buy all the daytime channels and um, over years dove and palmolive and all those brands became immovable brands right um, but it takes a long time. That That's the challenge right now. People go out and they're like, well, I'm building a brand and I've been around for six months, you know. It's just hard, man. Um, there's you you, you got to have a great product. You got to have it in front of a lot of people for a long period of time. So you better figure out a way um, to put more of your money back toward advertising if you want the the brand to last a long time because Procter and Gamble back when they were selling Palmolive <clears throat> could have sold it for a quarter a bottle, but they didn't. They sold it for two dollars a bottle and they spent a dollar fifty in advertising. So this is this game that we're all playing now is not a new game, but it was only played by really big people for a long time. Because you couldn't buy attention piecemeal the way you can now. They had to architect a whole system for attention by, you know, creating these soap operas, whereas now we can buy a piecemeal from Facebook, but it costs so much more to acquire it again and again and again that having that sort of distribution channel of attention and awareness is is challenging if you're relying on ads alone, I'd, I'd say, right? You look at our CPMs in um, online um, compared to CPMs on television, for instance, they're atrociously expensive. I mean, you, you might be a $30 CPM on Facebook and you might be a 50 cent CPM on television, right? So <clears throat> the, the cost to get a message out to a market uh, is far less expensive by television than it is by, than it is online. The, the difference is though, it's, hard, it's much harder for a person watching television to take action. When those things meld and blend and you'll hit your remote control button to go buy a thing, which has gotta be inevitable, you know? I think you're gonna see a rise in television again and, and you'll probably see television rates go up, you know? Um, but there's a lot of media out there that still works. Newspapers still work, magazines still work, uh, uh, radio still works. Um, over-the-top TV is becoming really easy to advertise on. So outdoor even works, you know, it's crazy. So, um, you know, I forget the, restate the question again really quick. What was the, I got a tangent. 
The question is if they and this sort of references a little bit what you were talking previously about retailers and the sort of uh, the, the the opportunity that retailers, brick and mortar retailers, have with ads in the market. You're specifically, I think, talking about uh, basically Warby Parker. Yeah, Warby Parker, exactly. Yeah, the, the ability to Warby Parker was a good example, and uh, Bobanos, and I got bloodied. I lost a half a million dollars in the custom suit business. So when Indochino came out and they were selling custom suits online, I cheated off the wrong person's homework, right? I decided, oh, I'm going to do that because I know the factories in China that make the suits. I know where they're getting everything. This is going to be easy. Well, what I didn't know is they were losing money profusely, but they were losing investor money, funny money. Um, And now they went to retail stores. All those suit companies went to retail stores. The Untuck It went to retail stores. Warby Parker went to retail stores. So there's a big push right now, if you notice, of... Brands launching online, then going to retail. Fabletics now has tons of stores, right? And there's a really good model of acquiring the customer in the store and then selling them backfill items online, which is what they found with Warby Parker and Fabletics and all those guys that you, you know, Warby Parker's an eyeglass company. So they, they were spending, I forget, I watched the guy do a talk. It was like $212 to acquire a buyer who bought like, a $90 pair of glasses. But then they knew that over time, that person would buy three more pairs of glasses in a year. So it all worked out, right? When they opened a store, quite by accident, just to be kind of showing off, they opened a store in Times Square in New York City, the most expensive retail space on planet Earth, I think, probably, other than maybe Rodeo Drive. Um, They found they could acquire a customer for somewhere around $70. So they could acquire in a retail location for two-thirds less than they could online. And then once that person, they serve that person in the retail location, they can send them new designs of glasses every week online and they'll continue to buy. In fact, they found that the, the repeat buyer was a much better repeat buyer if they had had their first transaction in a retail store. And they got over all the friction of, well, you got to get an eye exam. You got to they just have the doc there. You get the eye exam. And I think Warby Parker, I went by Warby Parker the other day, and they've got a, they're 10 bucks now to get an eye exam, or you can take it on your cell phone now. You can actually just put your cell phone out and do your own self-serve eye exam. So they're trying to overcome that friction. Because there's certain certain things, the number one friction in all of e-commerce is account creation. That's the reason you have such a problem competing with Amazon. Nobody wants to put their credit card in another shopping cart. Nobody. They really don't. I agree. I was just thinking about that the other day. I was buying something and whenever they have, I forget what the app is all of a sudden, but the one that just sort of knows you and it, it it's so much more of a, of a, of a better experience on Amazon or like one of those cart programs. You know, yeah. Wish Amazon somewhere where you can just press the button and they already got all your stuff, you know? And that's why Amazon's big Benny in the world is they have so many people's credit cards just on file and they keep them on file. So does, so does Apple. It's where AOL yeah, exists. So it's why AOL became an internet powerhouse as well. They had everyone's credit cards built into their browser. Yeah. And they, they never quite got it together on commerce. But boy, had they had, they'd probably still be around, right? It, well, if they hadn't kept billing people for months and months and months after they thought they – that was probably their problem as well from back in the day. What do you uh, what do you make of – I didn't ask you this in the pre-interview, but someone um, wanted to know. What do you make of AI and AI copy tools? I use them every day. Do you? Interesting. I teach them. We have a company. I have a company called Copy Geeks where we I've trained a bunch of copywriters in the Philippines and given them AI tools and 
they write like it's like unlimited copywriting for eighteen hundred ninety five bucks a month or something. A lot of ecom guys use them. They, because um, yeah, they can be a pretty good copywriter. You give them an AI tool and a little bit of training, you can make a copywriter out of just about anybody. Uh, now and and those things are only going to get smarter and smarter and smarter. And they, the AI and robotics are going to change the world in a way we can't. You know, I'm beginning to imagine how, but. We can't imagine how. I, I was looking at a prototype of a McDonald's that's like going to go online this year that has one, kind of one employee. Lonely part-time one. job. <laughs> it's a great big hamburger vending machine. And my bet is eventually they replace that person with cameras and people that can watch the machines and stuff from a distance. But uh, in here in Las Vegas, um, between outsourcing and robotics, and I'm in both those businesses, um, like if you if you're at Caesar's Palace here and you call down to get a ham sandwich by room service, you're calling the Philippines. Isn't that crazy? And they're entering that order to go into the kitchen at Caesar's Palace, and it pops up on a screen in three different languages. So even if the worker doesn't read or speak English, they can still make the ham sandwich and get it to the room. So like stuff like and like if you go to uh, most of the Caesar's properties now, to Caesar's very progressive. If you go to most of Caesar's properties now, there's no one at the front desk at all. They've replaced the front desk completely with kiosks, just like the airlines where you walk up, stick in your driver's license, your credit card, and spits out your room key, and you go to your room. And when you're done, you drop in a bucket, and you move on. So they imagine how much money that saved from having 24-hour-a-day front desk people. But it's going to create a big, giant problem if you, you know, um, that people are grappling how they're going to deal with because the best guess is over the next five years, 50% of low-level jobs will be eliminated, period, end of story. So half of people that make under $50,000 a year won't have a place. They'll just be displaced. I just read, and I just read before this about how it was like 24% of those jobs have already been destroyed from the pandemic and and from lockdowns and things like that. And it's like that we weren't when we were talking about how robots were going to take over, you know, three years ago, we weren't even thinking about pandemics, right? Yeah. And so not only do we have this Everything's accelerated. One of my wild things about Tesla, about about Elon Musk, is he's out there, you know, in Canada. He was he 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 was supporting the truckers during the trucker protest. But I'm like, Elon Musk is going to eliminate all truckers in about three in about three years. Oh, yes. Completely done. As soon as yes, as soon as trucks go autonomous and they have their own lanes and stuff, it probably be a little longer. The guess is the guess is on transportation about ten years before we're fully autonomous. But we'll be fully autonomous in ten years. You think? Of yeah, that. it'll be happen. You're, it'll happen quicker than we can fathom. I think. If you watch that show that's out right now, it's great called Upload. I don't know if you've seen it. It's I haven't. Great, I know of it. I haven't seen it. A very futuristic show. But it one of the things in it, it shows electric cars. Everybody just gets in the car and the seats set opposing one another. So you can have a conversation. One points that way, another points that way. Because you just get in the car and, and it just goes wherever you tell it to go. And that that's a surefire reality. But Musk said the other day that um, robotics will be a far greater industry than the self-driving car. Because everything, everything, that technology is already done. And there, I read the story... Uh, in this book, the other, there's a really good book I read called Inevitable. It's the 13 trends that will shape the next 30 years. And there was another one called Jobs of the Future. And they were talking about this, I think it was Enterprise Battery, that 
in their plant, one person could assemble about 40 batteries a day, you know, and they paid that person $35,000 a year. So a big portion of the battery was labor, right? So they brought in a robot and the robot could put together 100 batteries a day and made ne almost never made a mistake. This was 10, 12 years ago, but the robot was $1.2 million. So when the company looked at it and the cost to amortize the robot, it still took like 10 years to get your money back on the robot, right? Guess how much the robot is now? How much it costs or how fast it is? It's twice as fast. It does, well, it can do, some can do up to 400 units a day, but at least 200 units a day. Guess how much it costs? It costs a 500,000. 34 grand. 34 grand. 34 grand. That's wild. So, yeah, and it moves so all fast those, that you have to hit it with a strobe to even see it. Is what Elon said about some yeah, of these. Things. All those guys in those, all those guys in Arkansas that are putting together batteries are going to be out on their ass real soon. And you're looking at like right now they're building robots to process meat, which is really hard to do because meat's very irregular, right? It's an irregular item. But they're figuring out ways to do it. They're figuring out ways to grab it, measure it, turn it, so that you can slice up a chicken without anybody ever touching the chicken. Safer, for it's safer, the, the, you don't have bacteria transfer, you don't have any of those things. It's you know, more humane, cut, maybe. Maybe more humane, I think that's all. I don't know, <laughs> that's a stretch probably. But, but, but yeah, you're, so yeah. you're talking about, you know, pretty soon, all those people that are in there processing chicken right now will be processing chicken. They've already got robots that shake cherry trees till the cherries fall off and you know, pick pick different produce and fruits. So you're going to see it's just a matter of engineering. It's always been able to be done for a really long time, and people have been playing with the engineering of it for a really long time. The problem was the cost needed to catch up. You know, the costs were just so high. Now the cost, we're not, you, you probably don't know what a servo motor is, but a servo motor is a pretty awesome thing. It's a little motor, like about the size of a Red Bull can, is a one-horsepower servo motor. And where an electric, electric one power horsepower motor is much bigger. But this little motor has 360 positions on it and it's computer controlled. So you can make that motor go forward, backwards, one notch, two notch, three notches, backwards, 17 notches, whatever. Those, those are the motors that control robotics. And we used to use them for uh, uh, building liquid fillers back in the day when I owned some plants. And I remember looking at servo motors, they were 1900 bucks a one horsepower motor, and you had to have a controller that ran them all, this box that came in like a suitcase thing, and it was like 12000 or $14,000, and then you had to know how to use all that shit, right? And so you're looking at building a thing that had 10 servo motors and a little controller thing, it's fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 to build a very, very, very basic, wasn't even a robot really, it was just a assembly line of stuff. Uh, that same servo motor now is 11 bucks. So it's like robotics are, you know, the components are just way less. And the learning curve, people have developed software that like people can learn how to use in a day now. You can buy, you can buy a pretty advanced robot for 300 bucks on Amazon and, sit and teach yourself robotics in a weekend. 
My God. So we will have robot butlers. My my big prediction is that in the AI space is that we'll have AIs that know us better than we know ourselves, like butlers used to know. Butlers used to dress you and say, sir, I don't think that man has your best interests at heart kind of thing. Uh, sir, you're not acting you know, according to your goals or whatever. I feel like we'll all have, in, in, in this AI future, the access that you give your AI to your own data will determine how successful it is. And, and I guess when, when, when we get on, so what I'm interested in, and this is maybe going down the rabbit hole a little too deep, but like in this world of mass displacement that we may be heading to, one of the things that I've seen posited that, that will become uh, more popular and, and, and a way of sort of valuing people in society a little bit more is by having everyone hooked up to the blockchain where, you know, even your biological processes will be, you know, you'll, you, instead of working, you'll, you'll sort of like license certain aspects of your, of your biological processes to different companies who will be using it for research or something. Is this, is this too far down the rabbit hole? What do you think is going to happen when all this displacement happens? I really don't have any idea. There's a lot of talk right now of a universal wage where everybody just gets $32,000 a year as a baseline wage or whatever. It'll happen in Canada before the U.S. It's probably going to happen, period. It almost has to. And, yeah. and as much yep. as, you know, and I know there are people on here right now, you know, they're like, whoa, damn welfare. But, you know, it's not about welfare. It's just about economics. If you, if you, you look right now, like half of all the wealth in the world is held by like 100 people. You know, that's got to change it's got to be somehow redistributed and and the world will feel it, figure out a way to redistribute it right so there was a, a great quote that was in that one of those books i was reading where the president of ford was walking through a ford plant with the president of the united auto workers the union and he was really proud of this new robot they had and he said hey um jimmy i'll say it's jimmy hoffa why not um hey jimmy how are you going to get that? Look at that. He said, that's impressive, right? He said, yeah, it's really impressive. He says, how are you going to get him to pay union dues? <laughs> and the union guy said, how are you going to get him to buy a Ford? Right? When, when we've successfully roboticized and lobotomized and AI'd half the people in the world, who's going to buy the shit that pays for the robots? You know? It's really a, and you know what the great news is? We'll figure it out. We, we always do. But it, it, the markets will figure it out. But it is a fascinating problem right now that nobody exactly knows how to deal with. But, you know, so I, I don't know. I think that, I think you're going to see a bigger piece of the people's purchasing power continue to be in digital goods, things that aren't real. They're going to buy things in the metaverse. They are going to live inside video games. I believe in all that crap. I'm not going to spend any money in it. I don't know it well enough to, to get it. But I, I know that people that game right now, for a lot of people who game, it's a drug. I mean, it's an escape drug. They can go, they can go be a superstar in a virtual world with a headset on where they're very, 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 very ordinary in their real life. So it's an escape for them like any other drug. It's like gambling at a casino or taking a substance or drinking or whatever. It allows us to escape and fantasize about a world where we're a little more important than we really are.
And you, I think you speak to it really well too. It's like a lot of the biggest founders that I know have dumb phones now because they don't want to spend their life tied into social media and tied into all these things. So they're yeah. able to, and so this, so like you won't have to go work in the metaverse. If you're, if you've, you know, you've had, if you've made fuck you money, uh, you know, you won't have to go uh, farm the fields in the metaverse. Right. And that'll be kind of oh, your privilege. Buddy. Tucker Max is a really good friend of mine. And, um, um, uh, Mike Dillard's a good friend of mine and a bunch of these guys and they're all out, you know, um, uh, one of my other buddies in this trading space, they're all out in Wimberley, Texas. They bought a bunch of land and they're burying gas tanks underground and doing all kinds of nutty shit like that. So it's going to go one way or the other like that. You're going to be, you're going to want to be completely disconnected or you're going to be really connected. And the vast majority of people are going to be really connected. And those that are disconnected, uh, you know, I don't know. They're going to kind of be cult fringists in a way. But it's a way to live. It just depends on, you know, I think you're going to get that kind of hippie commune kind of thing going again for a lot of people. But I don't know how long it'll last. It's just, I, it won't matter because I'll be dead. But but I, you, know, but, yeah. you, won't get, you won't get uploaded into the machine? Unless I get uploaded. I might get uploaded. Maybe yeah. I can stick around for 20 more years. Maybe I can, maybe they'll get the uploading uh Elon says some really smart stuff about it. He said the other day that we are all already cyborgs. This is our cyborg device, right? Never and leave your are, side. We are connected to it, right? The only difference is the speed with which data can transfer from our brains to this device. As soon as more data can transfer faster will become more and more and more and more and more what the, what I'm a cybernetic organism you know yes. we'll be more of that and and it ain't that far bro <laughs> so no. when you i look know, at my screen time i realize yeah. it ain't that far and then you think about it literally it's your thumbs your bandwidth you know your connection is your thumbs and your yeah. eyes and that's how you like that will be very soon thought of as incredibly archaic the fact that you have to type out things with your yeah. thumbs to interact with this and we're still sitting here talking about selling salt shakers on amazon you know it's like where the real opportunities lie probably not there to be honest with you yeah it's a it's People are going to buy stuff, but they buy less and less real stuff, I think. As much as people like getting real stuff, I think there's going to be... Now, I do believe that consumer goods are going to be good for a long time. Shampoos, soaps, foods. Yes. Um, things that are consumable. Consumer consumer uh, things are going to be... But they're lower ticket, as you say, too, right? So they're not, they're, not they're, so they much still anymore, man. If you went to the grocery store lately, they ain't so low ticket. You know, I, I, I know how much stuff costs, right? So I've, been, I've manufactured almost everything you can imagine. I was at the other day, I went into the store and I, I picked up, a, a th I like these pretzel chips. You know those pretzel chips things? Yep. So those things are just pure flour and salt. That's all that's in them. And seven ounces of them is like six bucks, Right. That's probably there's probably twenty cents worth of raw material in that, and three cents in the package. So you're talking twenty three cents for six bucks. Some good cogs. And if you're getting a bag of them every week when you go to the grocery store, you know, if you really like them, what at the end of the day, how low ticket is that really? Because people don't. One thing people don't think about is, um, and maybe the last thing we'll talk about is, is not always looking for margin. Margin is not the most important thing in retail. It never was. And I'll tell you a story to get give you the example. So I was in Brazil. I've got a client in Brazil. These folks are very, very wealthy. 
And uh, um, they always want to do something else. They go to Tony Robbins stuff. They come to my stuff. They always, oh, we're going to do coaching this. We're going to do that. They don't ever do any of it. And that's okay. I wouldn't either if I were them. They're super rich. And I said, what, what business are you in now? We own cement stores. But we hate it because the margin's so low. And I said, uh, really? What's the margin? 13%. Wow, that is a low margin. I said, well, but tell me about the cement business. So we get into it. And I said, well, how much does it cost you to open a store? I said, well... We rent a store out. It's usually pretty cheap because we don't need air conditioning or anything. And there's not a big theft issue, right? So we'll just rent a store for maybe a thousand bucks a month. And then we bring in $40,000 worth of um, concrete and about $5,000 worth of gravel and sand on the side. And people come up and they buy bags of concrete and they buy gravel and sand by the pickup truck load or bucket full or whatever. I said, and 13%. Yeah, 13%. <clears throat> I said, well, Okay, so you're, say, 50 grand in opening a place? He says, yeah, that's about right. I said, well, um, how long does it take you to ROI? Well, I don't really know. I said, well, how long will it take you to sell out the $40,000 worth of uh, stuff? He said, oh, about 10 days. I said, so you turn over $40,000 worth of stuff every 10 days? Yeah. So they're turning over $120,000 a month at 13%. What's about... $20,000 $20,000 a month per location, right? They're paying all their staff, their rent and everything about $4,000 a month. So they're making 16 grand a month. They've got 60 locations, 60, six, zero locations. And they're buying all the stuff on credit. They don't pay for it till 30 days after they get it anyway. So they have no negative cash flow. So, so the big secret, nobody ever takes into consideration if you're an inexperienced uh, retailer, there are two giant levers in retail, and that's margin and turn. If you're selling bed sheets and making 20%, but you're selling out your inventory every two weeks, you're way better off than if you're selling you know, salt shakers and making a 70% margin, but you're turning over your inventory once a year. So people are going to have to get better at math, man. They really are. And, and they, they just don't, most people just don't math good. You know, they're, they're, they're going on to, Jungle Scout or Helium 10 and going, ooh, 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 look, they're selling this Quacking Duck doorstop is really selling. I'm going to get that too. Well, them and 700 people got Quacking Duck doorstops next week and all the margins gone. You know, and they can't turn them forever. It's just, it's a, it's an interesting problem right now. There's still money in it, you know, but I think consumer goods, uh, if I were going to be in e-com at all anymore, and I still do do some, but I do oddball stuff. I'd either do really oddball stuff that's hard to find in a local market that has good margin. Like I sell heat sealers online. It's good business because they're kind of hard to come by. I don't even know what that you is. That's like a driveway? No, it's for like sealing bags together. Like if you're oh, packaging. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah those, you, you can't find the bigger ones. The little ones I don't sell because you can buy them at a craft store. I sell the great big ones, you know, because they're harder to find. So a hard to find item that has nice margin in it, it's okay. Or a consumer item where I can make a I can make a chemical product up for a couple of bucks and I can sell for 20 or 30 bucks. There's a lot of room in that. Perry's pretzels. And that's could be coming down the pipe. Yeah. Right. Perry's pretzels. Yeah. Food. I think food items. Yeah. Food items and uh, uh, processed food items and chemical products, coatings, lubricants, things like that. Those are all really high margin, pretty easy to market things that people need. But um, just as far as the, the novelty, I'm going to go import this thing from China. That's just kind of, Cause it's cool, and I'm gonna sell it, dude. I think that's a. I think that ship has sailed. Those, but that's my opinion. I I think I agree, 
And I think knowing I gotta we gotta stay in touch here because I gotta I gotta get better at my maths. And you seem like a man who, who sees the, the the universe in in these terms of these numbers. Your and so your main thing right now is deal flow, right? Like you're looking for you're looking to acquire and sell businesses at this time. Is that is that what you're what you're aiming for? Yeah, I either buy outright, which I don't do very much of that anymore, just because I don't want to be the responsible party. Um, <clears throat> most of the deals that I do now, I buy a small piece, uh, kind of like Elon just did with Twitter. I might buy, you know, a few points, right, um, and then I'll consult and work with the people to grow the business. So that's that's the kind of stuff that I look for now. I just look for somebody who does something really well, but doesn't know how to scale it. They, they're stuck on scale. They, they're doing a couple million bucks a year, been doing that for two or three years, frustrated, don't know why they're stuck. It's so easy for me to look over the top of that and go, oh, let's move this to here and that to there, because I've done it a hundred times. When when you're inside your own thing, and you may be able to do it to my thing, right? I may be able to do it your thing. We we're, It's so much easier for someone to look at somebody else's problem and solve it than it is for them to solve it themselves because they're in the woods they're predisposed to you have all kinds of cognitive bias when it's you you're predisposed to, oh that won't work because of whatever and this won't work because of whatever you just you're already you're just discounting out every solution you've ever heard i had a call with a client this morning and um that i own part of a company with and a very successful guy and that we were arguing about changing a sales pitch to a negative pitch from a positive pitch and uh, I think the negative pitch was absolutely the winner. And he's just sure that it won't work because he, but he's so sure that it won't work that he won't even test it. Why would you be so sure that it won't work that you won't test it? Because you don't want to be wrong. <laughs> and, and some people would rather be right than to, be, I'd rather be rich than to be right. You know, some people would rather be right than to be rich. That's just the way people are, that's just the way some people are wired. They, being right is really important to them. Well, this has been fantastic, Perry. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, you're very welcome. People want to get in touch with you. I know you're active on Facebook. Is there? Are you are you actively looking for for people to reach out these days? How how would you recommend they do that? Sure. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll give you my cell phone number. How's how weird is that? Huh? Yeah, you can text me. Uh, and it's the phone I keep in my pocket. It's a five one two nine seven one five zero four nine. Just shoot me a text. And there's no automation to that at all. It's just the phone I got in my pocket. So if 9 million of your people hit me up, I'm probably not going to talk to any of them. But if two or three do, I might. You know, if there's, if there's something that really makes sense. You know, I don't, I'm not into funding ideas. I got too many ideas of my own. You know, I'm not really into funding ideas. I'm into looking for people who want to run some of the stuff that I fund. But if you've if you've already gotten to where, look, I'm doing this thing and I'm spending a quarter and every time I spend a quarter, I get back 50 cents, but I just don't know how to scale, call me. You know, I can help you with economies of scale and we can make a lot of money together. But that that's really the only, I don't have anything to sell right now. I sell a copywriting course. I don't even know what the name of the copywriting course is, but I, I sell one just to kind of keep in the market. But, um, and it's good. But I, that's not my purpose for being on any of these. It's just really to stay out in the market and have deals come my way. That's what I'm looking for. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at directtoconsumer, all one word, dot co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C Podcast. We'll see you next time.